Graduating high school is a major milestone in the life of every young man. On the night I graduated from a small Christian school in my hometown of Dalton, Georgia, I probably felt like most kids do. I remember looking at myself in the mirror before driving to my school and thinking I looked pretty stupid in my gown and mortarboard hat with tassels. I remember feeling nervous as I walked into the gym with the other graduating seniors to the graduation song and feeling bored as I sat to the valedictorian speech. I remember praying that I wouldn't trip over my shoes as I walked across the stage to get my diploma and then praying again that my family wouldn't embarrass by cheering too loud. But the feeling I didn't expect was that unique blend of accomplishment, fear, satisfaction, anticipation, fulfillment, and loss. And I was stepping away from boyhood. I was one step closer to becoming a man. And even though I didn't want anybody to notice, I was terrified. After the graduation ceremony, my family gathered around in the gym for pictures. Somewhere between all the hugs, handshakes, and congratulations, my granddad grabbed me by the shoulder and pulled me in close for a hug. Now, he wasn't the most physically affectionate to most people, but for his grandkids, he never missed an opportunity to love on us. And as he pulled me in, he whispered something in my ear that I've never forgotten. Son, don't ever forget who you are. Twenty years later, I'm struck by the wisdom of that simple directive. Everything we do in life will flow out of our understanding of who we are. A man without any understanding of who he is or who he's supposed to be will be aimless and spineless. He'll live an unfocused, undisciplined life without purpose or direction, chasing after whatever meaningless pursuit is assigned to him by the script of the culture that surrounds him. He'll also lack the confidence and courage to stand up straight and do battle for what's right. A man must own his identity. We can never forget who we are. Welcome to the Committed Masculinity Podcast, a limited series that explores the issues and challenges facing Christian men who are serious about Jesus' invitation to be a disciple. On each episode of our series, we will review the content of each chapter of the book, Committed, Biblical Masculinity, and then discuss the issues on each episode with special guests. On today's episode, chapter one, own your identity, purpose, performance traps, and sonship. With special guest, my dad, Alan Brooker. So, who are you? Why are you here? So many of us as men live our lives simply existing. Every day we climb aboard the treadmill of modern life and start jogging. We go through the empty rituals of our morning routines. We shower, shave, dress, get our coffee, and make the drive to our place of employment, rarely asking ourselves the bigger questions of why. Rarely do we question where we're going why we're going there, and how we ever got started on this meaningless journey in the first place. Who are we anyway? How did we get here? And why are we here in the first place? The book of Genesis gives us an amazing picture of our origin story as men. The Bible tells us that God created everything in the world and called it good. Mountains, oceans, trees, birds, and sea creatures. All of it was crafted by the hands of the master artist and placed in the world to display his glory. But after the sixth day of creation, the Bible says that God looked at what he had created and saw that it was very good. Why? 
because on the sixth day, God had created his ultimate masterpiece. He'd created something that bore his image and likeness. This amazing work of creation had an otherness about it. It wasn't like anything else. God had created man, and man was created in his image and likeness, Genesis 1:27. Woman was also later created in the image and likeness of God, and is therefore equal to man in every way. But since this is a podcast about men, let's reflect on the significance of God creating the man first. In the preceding days of creation, God had made wild animals, livestock, birds, fish, and creeping things. But as God creates man, Scripture gives us an amazing detail that speaks to the unique place humanity holds in the heart of God. Genesis 2-7 said that the man became a living creature by God, breathing into his nostrils the breath of life. No other living creature or created thing was given this unique distinction of being brought to life by the very breath of God. Only the man. And when the first man opened his eyes, what did he see? The very face of God. Before the man was ever given a job, a wife, children, or any other task or responsibility, he had a relationship with his creator. Theologians throughout church history have used the phrase quorum Deo, which means to live before the face of God, to explain the unique idea that God created humanity to live in relationship with him. God gave the first man the ability to communicate with God and others like no other creature. Unlike the animals, the man could use language to express the abstract thoughts of his mind and heart. He could speak words of truth, encouragement, and beauty to others that the animals couldn't. He could pray and talk to God. God gave the first man the ability to hear God's word and live in light of its revelation. The man also had the ability to make meaning out of what he received. He was able to think, consider, probe, and learn unlike anything else in all of creation. God also gave the man the unique gift of understanding God's worth and value and attributing that value to God through thoughts, words, deeds, and motives. Unlike the animals, the man was given the choice and ability to worship and love God consciously. So much could be said about the origin of humanity found in the creation accounts, but one thing is crucial in understanding our identity. A relationship with God is the most important element in understanding who we are and what our purpose is to be. So how did we get here? We were created by the hands of a powerful, loving, and masterful artist. He uniquely crafted us in his own image and breathed his very life in our nostrils, We're not like anything else that's been created. We're His. Who are we? We are the pinnacle of God's creation. We're image bearers. We were created to mirror God and enjoy a relationship with Him. Why are we here in the first place? We're here because God has created us for the purpose of reflecting His character, nature, and heart to the world. All of life is intended to display His love, faithfulness, and grace to those around us. But something has gone terribly wrong. Instead of us mirroring the image of an all-powerful, all-loving, sovereign, and perfect God through lives lived in relationship with Him and loving and faithful obedience, we've all chosen ourselves and our sin. We're broken. Broken mirrors. Cody works hard, loves his wife and kids, and considers himself to be a good man. But his anger is ever-present, 
constantly on a low boil and a hairpin trigger, ready to explode within a moment's notice. Cody believes in God and tries hard to be a good man, but truthfully, he reflects more of the hurt from his own dysfunctional upbringing than he does the character of a holy, gracious, loving, and forgiving God. Tom is an active member of his church, a good dad, and a dependable employee at a respected company. But Tom's sexual appetites are out of control. Nobody knows it, but secretly he views porn on a regular basis on his phone and laptop. Tom knows that it's wrong, but he feels like he can't help but mentally undress almost every female co-worker in the office, a bad habit that more and more co-workers are starting to notice. Tom is religious, but the reality is he reflects more of the darkness of his own depraved heart than he does the purity and righteousness of God. Cody has his morality, and Tom has his religion. But neither of those things come close to addressing the deeper problem, the heart. We were created to be mirrors, but because of our sin, we're broken mirrors. Instead of our lives reflecting the character and holiness of God, our lives so often reflect our own darkness, insecurities, pride, brokenness, vanity, hurt, and dysfunctional families of origin. Because we're sinners, both by our nature and our choices, our purpose as image bearers has become distorted. As hard as we might try, we now struggle in displaying the character of God. Not only are our bodies subjected to the curse of sin, but so are our very natures. We were born with what the Bible calls a sin nature, so that the internal character that is the essence of who we are is inherently sinful. Romans 8, 8. If you're struggling to understand what any of this means, let me put it plainly. It's impossible now for you or any man to fulfill his purpose, serve and love his family, and be all that he was created to be on his own. We're broken mirrors. We can't man up and be good. We can't man up and be noble or brave or honorable or truly virtuous on our own. We can't fix ourselves, save ourselves, or even be who we're supposed to be on our own. That's how broken we actually are. We were created for relationship with God, but sin has separated us from God. We were created as the pinnacle of God's creation, but because of sin, we have created wars, murder, genocide, holocaust, pornography, and untold suffering in our treatment of one another. We were created to mirror the image of God, but sin has distorted that image. The natural man has fallen, and he needs redemption. The second Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, 45-49, says this, The scriptures tell us the first man, Adam, became a living person, but the last Adam, that is Christ, is a life-giving spirit. What comes first is the natural body, then the spiritual body comes later. Adam, the first man, was made from the dust of the earth, while Christ, the second man, came from heaven. Earthly people are like the earthly man, and heavenly people are like the heavenly man. Just as we are now like the earthly man, we will someday be like the heavenly man. In his letter to the church in Corinth, the Apostle Paul points out to them the difference between two kinds of bodies, the natural and spiritual. The first Adam, made from the dust of the earth, was created by God in the garden, but eventually he died because of sin. Every man was born of the dust. We were all born into this broken existence and will someday die a real physical death because of sin. In the meantime, we're all limited by death, disease, sickness, and weakness, all 
because of sin. We can't be who we were created to be on our own because of sin. We're broken, and we have no hope of fixing ourselves. But God sent the world a second man, his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is described as a life-giving spirit. Yes, we were born into sin, but Jesus has invited us to be born again. John 3, 3. Just as Adam was the firstborn of the human race, so Christ, because he was raised to life, is the firstborn of those who will be raised from the dead to eternal life. And because Christ rose from the dead, he is a life-giving spirit who entered into a new form of existence as the source of the spiritual life that will result in our resurrection. And while we await our transformed eternal body that is perfectly suited for eternal life, in the meantime, if we are in Christ, we're in the process of being transformed. Here's what that means. If we're in Christ, our inner self, our soul, is being renewed to look more like Jesus. Our broken mirror can be repaired so that we can reflect the image of God more completely, just like Jesus perfectly reflected the image of God the Father, John 14, 9. You and I are incapable in ourselves to be the men we were created to be. And that could be the best news you've ever heard. The gospel doesn't call you to man up. Stop crying and pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Instead, the gospel invites us to admit our weaknesses and acknowledge our brokenness. The only hope any man has of fulfilling his purpose, serving and loving his family, and being all that he was created to be is through Christ. The answer for us as men is to step into our God-given identity and simply commit ourselves to be conformed to the image of Christ. We do this through faith in Christ, obedience to God's Word, and surrender to the Holy Spirit. You don't need more religious rules or moral codes that you can't actually keep. You don't need more pop psychology that may explain your brokenness but can't actually fix it. And you certainly don't need any more motivational talks that may help you feel better about yourself in the short term but can't truly change the insecurity that dwells deep within you. You need a Savior. You need a life-giving spirit to bring what's dead inside of you to life. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior who brings life, Nothing else in your life can fix the brokenness or fill the emptiness. Nothing else can give you purpose or an identity. Why? Because purpose and identity are received, not achieved. But if you do know him as Savior, let's talk. It's been my experience that so many men who start their journeys with Jesus often find themselves straying away from him over time. Many of us trust in Jesus for salvation, But over time, find ourselves looking to our careers, accomplishments, conquests, hobbies, or financial endeavors for fulfillment. It's as if we believe Jesus is more than capable of saving us from hell and getting us to heaven, but we don't believe that he's capable of fixing our brokenness, satisfying our deepest longings, and giving us our purpose. Over time, we start looking for identity and purpose and other things. The Performance Trap Even as young boys, we all had ideas and visions of what a manly man looked like and where we ranked on our created scales of masculine value. My oldest son is in kindergarten and plays little league baseball and junior pro basketball. Almost on a weekly basis, he reports to me who the fastest boy on his team is and where he falls in the weekly rankings. 
I wish I could say that we as men grow out of this practice of defining our value through comparison, but sadly, we often don't. We just use different measures of comparison as we grow up. A couple of years ago, I found myself at a fellowship dinner slash mixer for pastors, speakers, and authors before a large national church conference. My friend and pastor Corey Trimble was speaking at this conference, but I was just tagging along for moral support. I don't pastor a large church, I haven't authored any bestsellers, and I've certainly never been asked to speak at a national conference for church leaders. It was almost humorous and a little bit pathetic, to be honest, to watch some of the guys at this dinner working the room. I observed many of them practice very tactful politicking as they conversed with others in the room in very subtle attempts to determine if they were speaking to someone of note or status. I also watched the look of disappointment and disinterest appear on many of their faces when they discovered that I was a nobody and there just to support my friend Corey. I couldn't help but think of my six-year-old and his buddies foot racing after ball practice to see who was the fastest. But it's not just pastors that fall into this. Men from all walks of life, career paths, and tax brackets look for ways to determine our worth and value outside of who we are in Christ. We ask questions like, how much is that guy worth? When what we really mean is, how much money does that guy have? If our worth is defined by our achievements, then our identity in life will either be as a winner or a loser. And if that's the case, failure becomes something we can't tolerate because it's an assault against our core identity. The problem is, we all fail. Even the strongest, most moral, and most competent men on earth are sinners who make mistakes and have bad days. So what do we do? Well, we just get really good at masking and hiding our failures from others and even ourselves. We allow many opportunities in life to pass us by because we're afraid of failing and becoming a loser, and our purpose gets hijacked. Life becomes all about winning to prove that we're not a loser, crushing the competition, making a name for ourselves, and climbing to the top of the rankings drive and consume us, often to do very selfish and sinful things. It's sad that we so often fall into the trap of thinking that performance equals value. Without saying it out loud, we tend to believe that a man's competence, mastery, or dominance over other weaker men in certain areas of life earns him his worth. If you're a type A, achievement-oriented, competitive man, you may naturally gravitate towards defining your worth, purpose, and identity in this way. But here's the problem. This outlook is decidedly anti-gospel. The gospel tells us that our identity as sons of God is a gift to be received, not a task to be achieved, Galatians 3.26. In other words, you can never earn God's grace, redemption, forgiveness, love, and the identity that he's offered you in Christ. Instead, you have to humble yourself and receive that gift of a new identity through faith. In the same way, you can never achieve or accomplish enough in life to earn yourself a sense of self-worth or an identity. So many of us as men chase after this never-ending pursuit only to find that once we crest the peak of a certain mountaintop, we still feel just as insecure and unsure about ourselves on the inside. We may be considered the man by others, but deep down, we still feel like the same scared little boy. So what do we do? We go find ourselves another mountain to climb in hopes that once we conquer that one, we'll feel different inside and finally earn our identity as someone of value, worth, and significance. This becomes 
our purpose in life, to prove that we're somebody. And it's exhausting. The heart of the Father. In the strange season of life between high school and college, my dad and I grew apart. We didn't mean to. It just kind of happened. I was pursuing a future in music as a classical cellist, and I was spending a lot of time playing in ensembles and orchestras and was in private lessons with the hopes of getting a scholarship. I wanted to make my mark on the world and prove through my performance that I was a winner. The problem was my dad's not much of a musician, so inevitably we grew apart because we just didn't have that much in common. But as fate would have it, he and I found ourselves stuck in the car together for several days on a trip to check out various colleges that I was interested in attending. We butted heads a lot because at each school there were things I cared about that didn't interest him, and there were things he cared about that I thought were stupid. The fact is, the one thing my dad knew that I had too much pride to admit was that I was scared to death. I was scared of leaving home, leaving my high school, leaving my family and friends, and moving to an entirely new place. I feared picking the wrong school, the wrong major, the wrong state, the wrong city. I was scared that if I made the wrong choices when it came to choosing a school or a major or a career, it would set me up on a path for the rest of my life that could lead to me totally wasting my life and being a loser. No pressure, right? But my father knew me. He knew my heart and he knew my fears, even if I didn't want to admit them or say them out loud. One morning, at a hotel room in the middle of nowhere between visits to various campuses. I woke up to find a note he had written me. He was in the bathroom getting ready, the shower was running, and there was a pot of coffee he brewed for us, and a note sitting there with my name on it. I opened the note, and the first line of it reframed everything I'd been thinking and believing about that season of life. It said, Josh, who do you want to be? For my entire senior and junior years of high school, I've been so focused on what I needed to do that I hadn't even asked myself that question. I placed all the emphasis on my actions and my activity, but I'd forgotten who I even was. I'd focused on SAT scores, music auditions, scholarships, GPAs, and final exams, and I hadn't even stopped long enough to think about the fact that I was a human being, not a human doing. All of our activity flows from our identity, not the other way around. When we know in our heart of hearts who it is we are and who it is we want to be, what it is we must do becomes so much clearer. The note went on to remind me that God had a purpose and plan for my life. My dad told me he'd watch me grow up, and he knew God had his hand on me. And dad reminded me that if God had called me to greatness in his kingdom, if I chased after God, everything else would fall into place. My dad is far from perfect, but I thank God for the truth that was spoken over me by my earthly father from my heavenly father. I am my father's son, not because I worked hard enough to achieve that status. I was born into his family, and therefore, I have an identity. I am my heavenly father's son, not because I worked hard enough to earn that status. I was born again into his family, and therefore, I have an identity. I am not defined by my failure, my success, my achievement, my money, or any applause that may or may not come my way. I am not what others say about me. I am not what I own, and I am not what I do for a living. I have a Heavenly Father who loves me, has chosen me, has forgiven me, and has a plan and purpose for my life. 
When we accept the reality that God has looked upon us with favor and called us his sons through Christ, we are compelled to live differently. We stand up straighter and live with a sense of confidence in the love that our Father has for us. We're compelled to live our lives with purpose and meaning, not so that we can earn his love, but because he's already given it to us through Christ. We're compelled to treat ourselves with respect and treat others the way we want to be treated, even the weaker ones than us that we used to view as competition to be crushed. When our identity is settled, what we must do in this life becomes so much clearer. Owning our identity. So who are you? Why are you here? If you are in Christ, you are a son of God. You've been chosen, forgiven, redeemed, born again, and given the life-giving Spirit of God that is transforming you into the image of Christ. You're here on this earth to mirror the image of God to the world. You're called to show the world what He looks like through your life and character. No achievement, accomplishment, pursuit, victory, or success can ever earn you an identity or sense of worth as a man. Those things don't come from what we do. They come from what's been freely given to us by Christ. You need a Savior. You need a Father. No career, competition, task, or job can ever give your life a sense of purpose or meaning. If purpose or meaning in life isn't attached to the ultimate reality of who you were created to be by God as an image bearer, you'll spend your life in a meaningless pursuit of nothingness and vanity. See Ecclesiastes 1. The question is, will you own the identity that Jesus shed his blood for you to have? Or will you pursue the fool's errand of trying to earn it through your performance? Will you allow your purpose to be shaped by the identity that God has given you as a son? Or will you spend your life on the wild goose chase of achievement and performance? Don't ever forget who you are. Man of God, own your identity. So my guest today is somebody that's known me for my whole life, uh, <laughs> none other than my dad, Alan Brooker. How you doing, Dad? I'm doing very, very well, and I appreciate it, and I feel honored to be interviewed by you, so that's uh, yeah. quite an honor. I don't know if I've ever done uh, any podcast with family, so we'll see We'll see how this it's works. It's a scary you know, thought, really. But... <laughs> it is, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, introduce yourself. Tell I know you well. I've known you my whole life, but uh, some okay. people listening to this may not know. Tell tell people a little bit about okay, yourself. Well, one of my claims to fame is being Josh's uh, father, but uh, <laughs> I have a total of five children, uh, Josh being my number two son. And uh, I have uh, was a automotive dealer for nearly 40 years. I was born in a small town in Northwest Georgia, Dalton. Um, big, big family, lots of uh, cousins, kinfolks, uh, all lived in a small area. Our family had been established there for over a hundred years. Hmm. Um, and it was a great community to grow up in. Um, 
you know, everyone knew everyone else, uh, lots of close friends in church and school. Um, so it was a, a great place to grow up in. But uh, I did <clears throat> um, start our family there. Um, I was married um, to Josh's mom in 1982, and um, shortly thereafter, uh, started out in seminary uh, in Columbia, South Carolina, graduated from there in 87, uh, and Josh and his brother were born there, and moved back to Dalton, went back into the automotive business, and uh, had a total of all five of uh, the children. Um, we did, um, unfortunately, go through a divorce in 2009 and 10, and uh, I remarried at that time. Uh, Dawn uh, is my wife now, and we've been married now going on uh, over 12 years, going on our 13th year. And uh, in 2018, solar business moved to Beaufort, South Carolina. Um, we kind of started uh, over in a lot of ways again. I opened a Kilwin's chocolate and ice cream franchise, and Dawn <laughs> and I ran that until just recently. And sold the business a few months ago and now we're officially retired and uh living on yeah. the island and uh, enjoying a little slower pace of life so. well very cool so when you think back on your life identity is one of those things that you know it always has impressed me having the privilege of growing up in the family that i've grown up in and and seeing kind of that family name and when people noticed our last name and the town I grew up in, I'm sure, you know, even my generation got it, but your generation even probably got it even more. What did that mean to grow up in a place where people identified you by that? Well, I think it's a double-edged sword in a lot of ways. Um, my father always uh, reiterated to us, um, know who you are and uh, know where you came from. And uh, we've got hanging in our um, on our family wall um, a thing that was written written by my great grandfather, 1951. He was born in the 1880s. His father was a Confederate war veteran. How far back that goes? But um, the title of the little writing he did there was "Our Heritage," hmm. and um, I'm sure you've seen the copy of that, but mm -hmm. the premise of the whole thing was that there was a baton that had been passed to him from his father and father's father. And he felt like this was toward the end of his life. And he narrated this to my mom, but he um, expressed it was his turn to pass that mantle on to the next generation. Uh, he took that very seriously, and I think my dad picked up on that and tried to uh, instill that into us as well. And I think that's a, a very good thing. I think you get back to Scripture when you talk about the blessings being passed to the third and fourth generation. I really felt that strongly in our family, that I was fortunate to be born into the family I was and to have that mantle passed uh, all the way down to, to us. And now I guess my dad died, your grandfather, 10. Mm -hmm. 
I felt the weight of that even more that uh, sure. there is a responsibility I have to pass on to you and my children, even grandchildren, that same mantle that was passed to me. And um, so I, I'm very aware of that in all my actions that I do. That uh, Sure. That, That's a huge responsibility. Um, you know, I, I wrote about my high school graduation. That was one of the things that um, – I called him Papal. That's what we call granddads in Georgia. Uh, he said to me at our, my high school graduation was, don't ever forget who you are. Yeah. And um, that's not the first time I heard him say that, but I think that's probably the most memorable time. And I think back on my life and some of the mistakes that I've made and mm -hmm. the detours down certain roads that uh, I had to turn around and repent and come back to who I am both um, as somebody that was uh, privileged enough to grow up in the family that I am, but also just as a believer, as a uh, someone who has their identity in Christ. But um, what's that been like for you? Have there been times when maybe you've misplaced your identity in the past and, and found yourself defined by something other than who you truly are in Christ? Uh, most definitely. And I guess this is a, a little bit of a sore subject, but it is very real in my life when I went through the divorce in uh, 2009, 2010, one of the things that I was most concerned about, one was what it would do to my children. And two was how would my parents look at me hmm. and my family? Because in our family, commitment was a very serious thing. Um, and divorce was not something that even happened in most of our family. None, none in my parents' generation among all their siblings. So when that hit me and I went, I remember going over and talking to particularly my mom. Um, my dad had already developed Alzheimer's at that time, so... Mm -hmm. Yeah. I didn't want to put that burden on him. I was real careful of that. But when I spilled that out to my mom, I just, I broke down at that time. But she said, Alan, she said, there's nothing you can do that would keep us from loving you and supporting mm -hmm. you. And um, my dad was in the next room. He says, what does he say? What is he saying? I want to know. And I <laughs> went and talked to him and he just reached over and he hugged me. And uh, mm. it was like, that was an, a healing balm on that whole situation. Sure. And, um, you know, I knew who I was, that I had that, and whatever I was about to go through and uh, we're looking at the days ahead, that I had that foundation that was mm. going to sustain me. So that identity, well, it was with my family, but even deeper than that, uh, it was in my relationship with the Lord. I think they uh, personified that uh, in how they related to me. So. Sure. Yeah, I, I think it's so easy for us as men, especially to equate our worth with our performance mm -hmm. and our value with our performance. And, you know, even in a spiritual mindset, thinking that I'm valuable to God because I'm performing well for God. 
But really in all areas of life, I think a lot of us as men, we think I'm only as valuable as I am affluent or successful at my job or, you know, influential or charismatic or, you know, it starts early on for us as dudes on the ball field or things like that. Um, was that ever a struggle for you, equating your performance with value? Uh, sure. Um, you know, we all grow up. I grew up very competitive in sports and later that same sense of competition um, transferred over to the business world and uh, mm -hmm. particularly <clears throat> in the automotive business, there's a lot of big egos out there. And, sure. Um, you know, so there's always that, you know, look at the numbers. How many did you sell? How profitable were you this month or whatever? And the old joke is you could go from hero to zero uh, between the 30th and the first of the month because you'd have to mm -hmm. start all over, do it all over again and perform again. So uh, it can be something that sucks you in and, get you in that mindset. Um, I think for me, again, have, having everything that you had put your significance in and everything yanked out from under you is a real reality check. It's a gut check. Sure. Uh, and it helped me know that that's not really what defines me as a man. Mm. Uh, you know, what I have and at that time, I was on the verge of bankruptcy and everything else. But, uh, mm. you know, it's funny when you go through that, I think that's when God undergirds you and is the closest to you. That's the closest I'd ever felt in my wow. walk with God, um, going through the dark valleys during that time. So. Sure. So when everything got stripped away, it was kind of like starting from square one, you know, God do... Mm -hmm. Do you love me? Are you here with me? Am I still yours even in the midst of that? Yeah, most definitely. Yeah. Most definitely. So there's a lot of guys that um, are reading this and hearing this and, you know, the fact that I'm able to have this conversation with you as my dad and, and you were able to have affirmation from your dad, even as, you know, that was his last year of life and his mind was going, he was still able to reach out and give you a hug. And, you know, there's a lot of guys listening to this that may not have a, a father to relate to. And so when we start talking about receiving our value as our identity from our heavenly father, some guys that are probably really struggling with that language, what, what would you say to a guy that maybe struggles seeing God as father? And, uh, what would you tell him about? Well, I have counseled, um, guys going through some real struggles in life that, didn't have the same upbringing uh, that I have. And I always go back. Um, there's a book I read about the father heart of God um, hmm. a while back. And how when you really see who God is in his relationship with us, he genuinely is concerned about us as human beings. Hmm. Um, he's not aloof and distant if we are willing to embrace him and really get to know who he is. Hmm. Um, 
And, you know, that's hard to do when you don't have a physical manifestation of that in your life. But I would encourage them to seek out godly men that can kind of fill those voids in their life and be surrogate fathers and mentors. Sure. Um, And um, they're out there. It it makes me aware. I've done that throughout my life with a lot of uh, younger men that uh, didn't have that. I I know when you and Jeremy were young, uh, I worked with a group home, a group Mm -hmm. of guys. They were about 14, 15 years old, but had had some rough home situations. And one in particular, his name was Mike. Yeah, I remember him. Never will forget. <laughs> I would go up to the group home, and all they wanted to do was wrestle. And I was <laughs> tired. I didn't feel like it. By that time, I'm, you know, late 30s, about, about your age now. And last thing you want to do after working all day was come home to a 14, 15-year-old and get out <laughs> and wrestle with them for 30 minutes. But uh, <clears throat> this Mike guy kind of took in, and I even gave him a job at the dealership washing cars. And uh mm-hmm. He uh, happened to take off, and one of them barred it for the weekend and took it out muddy and uh, just (laughs) trashed everything. Um, You know, so we had a little um, thing we had to deal with uh, on terms of that. But when I would take him home, his mother would be there, and he wouldn't even know the guy that was in the trailer with her. And, Mm -hmm. you know, he was scared to even go home. That's why he ended up going to the group home. So, but he called me back. Um, it's probably been 15 years ago. He, he was a young adult and stuff and just told me he apologized again for taking out the vehicle out and mudding <laughs> and doing all that. But he told me he had gotten married and um, he was following the Lord and, you know, just really wanted to thank me for the role I played in his life which did me a, a lot of good. So I think it's it's important to realize that that's the majority. And working at Kilwins here, I've had two or three of these young employees, guys in me that just want to hang around me and are asking me uh, advice and everything. There's a lot of young boys, men that are starved for a – male figure to be in their lives to give them that role. So, yeah. um, So searching that out is important, but also becoming that and being that for younger guys. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah. So here's kind of a random question. I don't have this written down on the question I was going to ask you, but what's that like after your dad passed away? uh, Now knowing that generation that kind of raised you is, is kind of is gone. Like, what, what does that look like? I mean, what does that feel like? You will know one day, sir. <laughs> uh, but, oh, let me turn this off here. Sorry. Um, there's a sobering reckoning that comes with that. Hmm. You know, as long as your father's alive, you've got a buffer there, you know, that you can always sure. feel like you can go to and stuff. Yeah. Somebody's listening. They're wondering if I put that as a sound effect. No, down. no, it's, it's not. It's just a, kind of crazy there. <laughs> um, but um, 
Yeah, it's just an awareness that you're now a patriarch. Mm. That's a, a different role than you played all your life up to that point. Sure. And, um, you know, I do have siblings that have those roles, but by the time your siblings get to our age, they've all got their own children and grandchildren. So your family dynamic is more with them than uh, with your siblings or your former family. So um, it's a, I guess a sense of responsibility is a lot heavier when you get to that point after, you know, you lose your father and you're it at that point. Sure. I bet that's an opportunity though, to really lean in on, finding that relationship with your heavenly father as incredibly valuable, you know, cause you're looking around saying my earthly father's gone, but here's my heavenly father. Well, you know? the good thing on that, I can still hear my dad's voice in my head um, mm. a lot from wisdom and instruction he gave me um, over the years. And, you know, it's, um, it still kind of gets a lump in my throat when I, I think about that. Um, but that's kind of how I think our Heavenly Father wants us to have that relationship with Him. He wants us to be able to hear His voice. And mm-hmm. when we come to decisions that we've got to make in life to cry out for that voice and say, you know, what am, what am I supposed to do in this situation? Because no. when you get further down that path and become more of the patriarch you realize the buck kind of stops with you and the decisions for many others in your responsibility under your um, authority fall on you so you're much uh, more aware of the weight of those decisions that you make them sure 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 so we're talking about identity today and talking about being confident in who we are in christ fact that we are sons of God because of Christ and we've been adopted into the family and as we live in that identity it causes us to be confident it causes us to understand that our value to God is not based on our performance it's based on what Christ has done for us and the fact that we were born again into the family of God through faith in Christ you know when you think about someone being confident in their identity. Is there somebody that sticks out in particular that you look at a guy and you just go, man, that's a guy who knows who he is. That's a guy that I, I just really aspire to become like, um, somebody just strikes you as being that and personifying that. Wish I'd give a little forethought to that question. (laughs) I've got several, um, role models in my life. Let's see. One of the ones that I really felt confident. I've got a friend of mine. He's a, a pastor by the name of Jim Suttoth. I don't know if mm-hmm. you ever yeah. met him. He was six, seven, played basketball at Duke or whatever, but uh, he's actually a year or two younger than me. But when I was going through that dark time in my life and stuff, he was a really a rock that mm helped walk me through that. Well, I'll tell you another one is Sam Hare. He was, has been another one that has been that 
consistent and he would be more in line with what you would remember as growing up. Yeah. Yeah. But those men always brought everything back to your relationship with God. Hmm. And it always came back to that. I mean, they would let you pour it out, let you dump and tell your feelings, everything like that. They'd be there to do stuff with you and, um, you know, hang out or whatever. But uh, they always kept bringing you back back to God. And both Sam and Jim periodically follow up on me and say, how are you doing? You know, how, how are things going with you and stuff? And um, Jim said something, Jim Suddeth, one time he says, you know, in the Marines, if you're out on the battlefield and you're wounded, they don't leave you behind. There's somebody yeah. that puts you over their back and they get you off the front lines and back to the hospital. And he said, I'm your, you know, brother in this, I'm your uh, fellow soldier. And I'm not going to leave you wounded on the battlefield. I'm going to get you back to mm. get some healing done. And that really stuck with me. And that meant the world to me at that time. And I think um, as men, that's part of our role with, with other men to know that there are times when we've got to be that soldier carrying our fellow soldier on his back and, and getting him back to a place where he can recover and get get healing again absolutely um absolutely i don't know how far that got off your question I'm... no no that's good I, I think one of the things i remember because I, I mean i grew up knowing those guys and at least you know um sam Hare. and uh i just remember being struck by just that confidence they both seem to carry mm-hmm. in christ and who they were in christ um not perfect men there's no such thing as a perfect man but you know, what I was struck with from knowing both of them growing up and, and meeting other guys like them is like when you're confident in who you are in Christ, you have the margin then to help other guys that are wounded on the battlefield. Yeah. And when you're always trying to figure out who you are and define your worth by your performance, you're not able to really help anybody else. You're just trying to use them to gain a sense of self and of self-worth. And it kind of seems like really the only way to to serve other guys or help other guys or minister to other people is being able to know um, who you are in Christ. Yeah. That you're secure and you're loved. And yeah. So kind of last question, and this is a little, a little more personal for me, but um, you know, the dedication of this particular book goes to uh, not just my friend, David Young for helping me write it, but my two sons, Judah and Aiden and uh, they're young guys, six and Two, Judah turns two today. Um, but I want to instill in them that sense of identity, who they are, not just as being a, a Brooker man, but also being um, a follower of Christ when they're old enough to make that decision to be a follower of Christ. What would you say um, would be the most important thing to instill in my two sons to remind them who they are? I think the biggest thing is you model that before them every day in all that you do and always be aware that they're watching you. I know you sent me a video um, one time sitting watching a 
basketball game, I believe, with <laughs> Aiden. And you would cheer at the game, and he would <laughs> he would cheer at the, He wasn't two years old, I don't think. Yeah, he's younger than that. He had a little now. snack right there, and he'd take his snack, and then he'd hand it to you for you to take the snack. And, <laughs> and I'm thinking, my word, he is watching everything Josh does with very captive eyes. And I wonder what's going on in that little brain. He said, I want to be just like him. Hmm. And that's a scary thought. I remember looking at my dad and thinking he was Superman and um, Spider-Man, everybody rolled up into one and just 10 feet tall and bulletproof could do anything. And I thought, man, I'll never aspire to that or achieve to that. But lo and behold, one day you're there and you watch this man that you thought was Superman. Can't even remember who you are, what your name is. So Mm -hmm. that's kind of how things pass. But, um, you know, just modeling and looking for opportunities to instill um, wisdom into their lives. Uh, I don't know how good a job I've done with that. I've got a lot of failures and a lot of things that I'm ashamed of, but I'm very, very proud of you uh, and the man you've become. And uh, with Jeremy and Jonathan there uh, have many successes in their life. And I get opportunities to talk with them on a regular basis and, but I'm still your favorite, right? For the purpose, <laughs> you're, you're silent there. <laughs> you're of silent course, there. Josh, really. Of course, yeah. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Well, Dad, I love you, and uh, love thank you, you too, so man. much for for hopping on. And uh, hope this was helpful to folks. So, thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Committed Masculinity Podcast. If you like what you've heard and you want more, head over to Amazon and pick up your copy of the book, Committed, Biblical Masculinity. Please give this podcast a share, leave us a review, and tune in next time. Thanks again for listening.